you want to turn to Romans 8.28, that's what we're going to look at today. Romans chapter 8. It's a familiar verse. Kind of cutting in here in the middle of this chapter, but it's probably one of the best verses in all the Bible. And it says in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are thee called according to his purpose. So like I said, it's probably one of the most well-known verses in all the Bible. It's quoted frequently. But also, I think it's one that's tended to be misunderstood. You know, there's a group of Christians we know that no matter what happens, anything you tell them about, their reply is, it's all good. And they're referring to this verse. But here's the deal. You know, it's kind of hard to stomach, it's all good, hearing that quoted when you just lost your job, your car's in the shop, all your kids are sick, and according to the news, you don't know which bathroom to use. So I'm just saying it's not all good. So there's things we have to deal with in our lives that they just aren't good in and of themselves. If you have to talk to, say, a parent or somebody that just lost their child in a heroin addiction overdose, I'm saying to, to say it's all good to them, you just get a blank stare back. I mean, that's really not what it's saying. Or you, you know, you hit your thumb with a hammer, right? And you could tell somebody that's good. That's not good. That's not what this verse is teaching. But what this verse is teaching is that we can know something. We can know that all things that happen to a Christian, whether good or bad, are working together for their good. Now that is vastly different than saying it's all good, because it's not all good. Some things are bad that happen to us. But listen, our Lord, our God, he takes both the good and the bad. And if you're his child, he sovereignly blends them together in a mixture that will produce good in your life in the end. Well, let me illustrate what I'm talking about here. We all know the story that Jesus gave, the parable in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus. And so the rich man is begging Abraham. He says, I'm tormented in these flames. Will you just dip your finger in water and touch the tip of my tongue? And what was Abraham's answer to him when he asked for that? About the minimal amount of comfort you could get. And he said this, Abraham said this to the rich man. He said, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. So if you would have said to the rich man before he died, it's all good, he would have given you a hearty amen. He would have said, yeah, it's good. I got plenty of food, fine clothes, friends, and a house that's like a castle. It's all good. He would have amened that, right? And if you would have said to Lazarus before he died, it's all good, he'd have probably asked you, well, which part? Is it the hunger? Is it the sores on my body? Is it these dogs that are coming and licking my sores? Is, is that the good part? He's like, this goodness is just killing me. <laughs> you know, eventually it did. But if you would have encouraged him that God is working all this for his ultimate good, all of what's happening, he'd have bowed his head and he'd have said this, God is teaching me that life is more than food and raiment. All things are working for his good. He's working humility in me. He would have said, I'm learning how to love my enemies in a way I never could. And he would have said, this trial is working endurance in me and how to trust in the love and faithfulness of God when my circumstances are telling me differently. So the only way a man or anyone can say that, and especially someone in this condition is, is because he knows something. And that's what Paul's telling us here in verse 28. He begins that saying, and we know. And so he's assuming that all Christians know what he's saying. And that word know means to see. Like you perceive, you understand, you clearly see. He's saying we should see that, that all things work together for good to them that love God. And that's what God wants all of us in here that are Christians to know today. That all things are working for your good. Because listen, that's something we can know. We can't know everything. Like, just go up two verses in verse 26. Here's something that we can't know. What does it say there? It says, likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for. 
you're facing a situation today, and I'm sure there's many people in here that are, it's confusing. You may not understand the right thing to do. You don't know which way to turn, and you're telling yourself, I don't know how to pray for this. But Paul's saying, hey, that may be the case. This situation, this situation you're facing is perplexing, difficult, but there is still one thing that you can know. We can know this, and that is you can be certain if you're God's child that whatever this is, that you don't understand this dark moment of your life, it will ultimately work for your good. And that's the way the Christian life is. We don't know. There's things we don't know, but yet there are things that we know that we can know. And that's one of them, that all things work for our good. So Abraham, it says this about him in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, he obeyed, and it said he went out not knowing whither he went. And that not knowing means he wasn't familiar. He's going into a country he is totally unfamiliar with. But God, his father, has told him to go there. So he's going into a place that's a strange country. They speak a different language than what he would have known, and it's dangerous. But he had to trust in this, that it would work for his good. Because a lot of times our obedience to God, where he's taken us and following his voice and the leading of his word, it takes us into situations we'd rather not be in. And we have to trust in our heavenly father that this is somehow going to work out for my good. In the end, and that's what this verse is telling us. But here's the first thing we need to see here. Well, we need to know something, that all things work together for good. To whom? To those, it says, that what? That love God, that love him. So who are the we that can know this? Who are the ones that this promise pertains to? So is it right to tell a non-Christian, an unbeliever, that all things are working together for their good? Because the Bible doesn't say that, does it? It doesn't say all things are working together for good for an unbeliever. In fact, it says just the opposite. What does it say in John 3:36? He that believeth not, it says the wrath of God abides on him. The rich fool, when he died, the one that wanted to build the bigger barns, were all things working for his good? No, what did Jesus say? To, he said, you are a fool in the end. What about Queen Esther, the story of Esther and Queen Esther? You think about that. All things, can you say that to everybody? What about Haman? You know, Haman got all excited that the queen, Esther, is inviting him to a banquet with the king. And he's had a string of good success. All things did seem to be working for his good, Haman's good. And he calls his wife and friends together, and here's what the Bible says he told them. Haman told them, look at how God's blessed me whatever God he worshipped, he told them of the glory of his riches, the multitude of his children, and all the things wherein the king had promoted him and how he had advanced him above the princes and servants of the king. But he adds one thing, he tells them, but you know what, I've got all that, but there is one thing that is bugging me. Mordecai the Jew is still sitting at the king's gate. And his wife and friends are like, well, look, Everything's working for your good. Why don't you just build a gallows and task the king when you go to this banquet? Can we hang Mordecai on them? Surely everything else is going your way. That's going to go your way. But we know what happens, right? Who ends up on the end of that rope? Haman ends up on the end of that rope. So all things we're saying seem to be working for his good, except Haman disqualified himself in one major way. So what's the qualification here? For those that love God. He didn't love God. He hated God. So it didn't work out for his good. It worked out for his destruction, all things, didn't they? And the opposite ended up being true. It looked like the opposite outcome was coming the way of Esther and Mordecai. But they did love God, and all things ultimately did work out for their good. So that is the limitation. This is a, just a tremendous promise, Romans 8.28. It really is. But there's a limitation. It's only for those that love God. And the English word order is different than the Greek word order. That's why I'm dealing with it first, because actually in the Greek it is dealt with first, because this is literally how it should read. We know that for those who love God, all things work together 
for good. So I would say this. If you do love God, he's causing all things in this universe. Everything in this universe, if you love God, is working for your good. Well, that's tremendous. <laughs> and I thought this was funny. A man wrote this, and I agreed with this. He said, it's funny that he didn't say for those who believe in God. He doesn't say that, does he? And why not? Why didn't he say that? Because there's a lot of people, the devils believe in God. There's a lot of people would say they believe in God. Most people in America would say that. But to love God in a biblical sense, that involves more than just the old intellectual nod. Yeah, I believe in God, so all things are working out for my good. Oh, no. He's saying you have to love God. And what does that mean to love God? Because you hear a lot of people say, oh, he loves the Lord. But there's a lot of things that person does that you say they love the Lord. That just, I'm, is that how you love somebody? So the first thing you do if you love God is you should have a desire to qualify for this. You want to please him. You want to please him as your heavenly father. Secondly, you want to live for his glory. That's in your heart. For all he's done for me, I want to please him. I want to live for his glory. And Jesus said, we know this in John 14, he says, if you love me, you will do what? You'll obey me. In 1 John it says, if you say you love God and don't keep his commandments, John's blunt. People say, I'm black and white. He's way more black and white than I ever could be because he says, if you say you love God and you don't keep his commandments, you're a liar. I don't call anybody that lately. You're a liar. And the fourth way you can know that if you love God is you'll want to be like him. Isn't that what it says in 1 John 3? Everyone that has this hope, they're going to see him. They want to be like him. They're getting themselves ready to see him so they can be like him. And you can't do that with just your head, can you? You can't do those four things. Impossible to please him, to want to live for his glory, to keep his commandments, and to be like him. You know what that means? You're going to fulfill when they ask Jesus what's the greatest commandment. He says, the greatest commandment is thou shalt love the Lord your God. And how does he say you do that? With all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's what it takes. And that's what Paul's saying here. Those are the ones that qualify for all things to work out for their good. And I would also say the Bible, Paul, he doesn't use, talk about much about our love for God. He mainly emphasizes God's love for us. But he does say in one place that we are to love God with sincere hearts. That means hearts that have pure motives. There's not something mixed in there. And that's at the end of Ephesians, Ephesians 6.24. He ends that epistle saying this, Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity is how he ends that. In sincerity. And you know what that is? That is what true friendship is. The love of a true friendship is when you love somebody in sincerity. And that means it's a pure love with no self-interest. And that is the love of Jonathan and David. Now, they had a sincere, pure love for each other. No self-interest. Jonathan was more than glad. Saul's like, what is wrong with you? You're helping this guy out. Don't you know you're going to be the king and you keep helping him out? He's going to have the throne and you're not. And Jonathan was more than glad. He knew David was God's anointed. And it wasn't that Jonathan didn't have faith. Oh, man, he had all the faith he needed. Him and another guy defeated a whole garrison of the Philistines. No problem. But he had a true love, both of them did, for each other. And it says that Jonathan loved David like this. It says he loved him as he loved his own soul. And that's loving somebody with sincerity. And that is how we're supposed to love the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. That's what it means to love God. You know, King Alexander years back in Greece, he had two friends, Hephaestion and Craterus, two friends. And this is what he said about his two friends. He said, Hephaestion loves me because I'm Alexander. But he said, Craterus loves me because I'm King Alexander. So what's he saying? He's saying, my buddy, Hephaestus loves me because he loves my person. And he says, Craterus loves me because of the gifts I give him, the benefits he gets from me. And that's the difference. And so let me ask you, we're saying all things work together for good for those who love God. Let's all ask ourselves the question, do we love God? 
Do we love him for who he is? Do we love the Lord Jesus Christ as you would love your own soul? That's a question to ask, isn't it? And that's the qualification we're getting here for this promise. You know, one way to test your love for God is to see how you respond to adversity. Do you respond like Job? Job had adversity come on him like no one else had. And his answer was, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Didn't diminish his love for God. Because he didn't love God for his gifts. But his wife? That's the way you can tell. Are you Job or Job's wife? What does his wife say? Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. Did she have love for God in her heart? Maybe while things were going good, she probably walked around blessing the Lord. Oh, I love the Lord. Look how he's blessed. But when it was all taken away, it wasn't there. Let me tell you one thing that should encourage you. It should be an encouragement that if you do have it in your heart that you want to please the Lord, you want to see him glorified in your life, you want to obey him and be like him, and you really do love him for who he is, and it may not be perfection, but really you're thinking, really, that is my heart. I think most people in here could say that, honestly, and you should be encouraged about that because if that is true, then there's only one way that could be true if you have that kind of love for God. And you know why? what that is? It's because he loved you first. There is no way we love him. We don't love him to get him to love us. That's not what the Bible says. That's impossible. Our hearts are totally dead. We have to be literally raised to life to be able to love the Lord. So it's not like, man, I'm going to try working at loving him so he'll love me. No, if you have love for him, it may be like Peter. Peter, I think, had a true love for the Lord. It wasn't always perfect, but he knew he really did. If you got that heart for the Lord, he gave it to you. First John says, we love him because he first loved us. And so here's the encouragement I want to get out of that. You're thinking, man, I really do love the Lord. I really do want to please him. I may fail, and I'm broken about it. That is my heart, though. I may not always do it exactly like I should, but that's my heart. If you can say that, listen, then this verse should have great encouragement for you because it's saying if that's the case, if you love the Lord, you can be certain, take it to the bank, that all things that happen in your life are working together for your good. And that really should be a great encouragement. And let me just add this. If you're saying to yourself, well, I want to love the Lord, but I feel lacking. Let me give you a few thoughts about that. Okay. <laughs> and first of all, God desires our love and deserves our love. And what is the greatest proof of that that we could know? I mean, there was a time in my life when I think I love the Lord. I just don't know that he loves me. I struggled with that. I talked to Brother Hamilton about it. If I could just know God loved me, I'd give him anything, my life. But we can see that he wants our love and deserves our love because of the cross. He's demonstrated it to us. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so what more could he do to show that he desires our love and deserves our love than what he did on the cross? And I like this quote from Augustine. He says, the cross is a pulpit, and the message Christ preached is love. I thought that was good. That's the message. You look at that cross, and there it is. You have to wonder, if you love him, he's not going to love you back? And that's one thing I like to my next point. If we love God, sometimes you think, well, I love him. Maybe people wrestle with the whole predestination thing. Well, maybe I'm not one of the elect and I'll just be wasting my time. No way. You love him, you're not going to return hatred. It says this in Proverbs. God says, I love them that love me. If you give your love to him, he will not disdain that. He won't. And we can be encouraged by that. So another thing you're saying, well, my love just doesn't seem like it should be. I think I love the Lord. So another thing to do, study God. Think about him. Think about his attributes. Think about his tender mercies, his loving kindness. Also, his justice and his holiness. Those should bring forth love. Don't we love justice? 
I mean, doesn't the injustice that's going on now, the craziness of our United States of America and the laws we pass, doesn't that bother you? I mean, I love justice and I love God. He's the source of all justice and holiness and righteousness. So we have that in his goodness towards us. Do things like that, it will increase your love for him. It will increase then your assurance that you're his child. And then the last thing I would say, if you're really struggling with that, you're just like, man, my heart just feels empty. I just feel hollow in here as far as a love towards God. Ask him to give it to you. Why wouldn't he do that? Solomon says, I'm just a young boy. Lord, could you give me the wisdom to guide this great people? And what did God say? You ask for something like that, Solomon. I'll give you that and everything else you didn't ask for. So if you're struggling with that, ask him of all things, why would he turn you away on that? Trust him to do that, to put that love in your heart. So the first thing we need to see here with this Romans 8.28 is there is a limitation on that promise. It's for those that love God. But the second thing we want to look at is that God works our ultimate good in all things. I want to emphasize the all things, and that's things good and bad. Now, there's a lot of commentators out there. They want to just say, oh, this is just talking about the bad things work for our good, the suffering, persecution, trials. But listen, Paul doesn't just limit it to troubles. He could have, couldn't he? He could have said all troubles work together for good or all trials or all suffering work together for good. But he didn't do that. He said all things. It's the exact same. If you're looking at your Bible, look down in verse 32. It's the same all things here at the end of verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us what? It's the same all things. And that's not bad stuff there. So when he's saying, and we know that all things work together for good, he's talking about the blessings and the suffering, the good and the bad. And Paul said this in Philippians 4.12. He said, God instructs me. He teaches me how to prosper and how to be in need. He says, I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed so there's even some instruction with the blessing. <laughs> you think, man, I need to know how to deal with being poor. Well, you need to learn how to deal with being rich if you are. Actually, it says there's way more temptations to the rich is what it says in Timothy. But Paul says, I know how to deal with that. He says, everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. So both lack and abundance work together for Paul's good. That's what he's saying. And what is that? The reason for that, it instructs him how to depend on Christ. Because the verse right after he says that is the verse we sing the song or quote all the time, I can do all things. And he's talking about the all things is being abased and abounding. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. And that's what he's learning through that. So the all things we're saying includes things both good and bad. So let's deal with the good first. What are some of the good things that work for our good? And I would say, first of all, the mercies of God. Most of all, right? Psalm 103, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, his mercies. What are they? He starts off saying he forgives all thine iniquity, and he heals all thy diseases, and he redeems thy life from destruction, who crowns thee with loving kindness and tender mercies. Are we going to say those things don't work together for our good, that we don't need those? We need them. We don't just need to suffer. We need those tender mercies and loving kindness, don't we? The forgiveness, the healing of our diseases, the benefits of God, his healing, his forgiveness, his joy, his peace, all that work for our good. David wrote this. He says, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? What can I give him back for all he's given me? And he says this, I will take the cup of salvation, lift it up, and call upon the name of the Lord. That's what we need from our God, his mercies. And what about his word? Is that not something that works together for our good that we need? That's a good thing. So we need his word for direction, knowledge of God, correction, and our spiritual life. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. 
and a light into my path, he writes. In John 6, 63, Jesus says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Without them, without this word, we would not have life. It's the word of God that gives us life, that works for our good. And what about all the promises that are contained in the word? Do we not need those to work for our good? The promises to believe, like Psalm 91, 15. For instance, he shall call upon me, I will answer him, I will be with him in trouble, I will deliver him and honor him. So would everyone in here, I think everyone in here would agree that we need his word, that his word works in us for our good, works towards our good. And what about prayer? I mean, obviously prayer works for our good because that's our means of releasing God's power and bringing it down into our lives. Is it not? That's a good thing that works for our good. That's how we obtain grace and help in time of temptation. You know, Martin Luther, he told his friend that came to him, he says, when temptation comes, he said, when that happens, when you're under temptation, I like the way he said it, you should betake thyself to prayer. When it comes, get yourself on your knees. That's how you can deal with things. But that's something God has given us for our good, to work all things, right? Prayer in our lives. And other believers, our fellowship here, this church, so we're encouraged, rebuke, we get prayed for, we're edified by the fellowship we have in this church. And God has blessed us with the church, and this works for our good. So there's a lot of other things we could talk about that are positive in that sense that God uses and works for our good. And the thing is, we don't have trouble understanding how the mercies of God, his benefits, his word, prayer, and fellowship. We don't have trouble understanding how those things work for our good. What we struggle with are how trials, afflictions, suffering, sin, and even backsliding can work for our good. Well, let me say this. I want to be clear on this. Affliction, suffering, sin, and backsliding are not good in and of themselves, right? They're bad. So we're not looking for suffering and persecution. You know, I want to find some suffering out there so I can have some good work. You know, we don't have to look for that, do we? It'll come our way. Trial, suffering, persecution, they're ready to sneak up on you in any moment, right? I read about this in a class I had. There was a time in church history where, I mean, people were trying to become maimed and martyred. And they thought it was somehow going to gain them status in heaven. And they had to correct all that type of thinking. But that's not what he's trying to teach here. Or someone in a backslidden state. I'm not saying, hey, that's what you want to be so it can work for your good. That is a dangerous position to be in because many people never recover. But here's what I am trying to say. God can use even that, as bad as it is, for the good of his child. Because he says all things. And how is that? How do bad things work for our good in the sense of this? What happens when you get in a trial, you all of a sudden things aren't working right in your body? Bad things happen, what happens? It gets your attention, doesn't it? Wakens us up. Shocks us sometimes. All of a sudden the bottom seems to be falling out on your life. And what does it do? It causes us to do what? Causes us to seek God, doesn't it? And through that, we go through that, we realize how small we really are. And we realize our dependence on God and that without Him, we can do nothing. We realize how literal that is true. It's all of grace. So we're talking about bad things. Take temptations, strong temptations. So a person loves the Lord and they're trying to overcome them. And it just what happens. It just shows them how weak they are. I mean, you're really battling. You've got a strong trial or temptation coming your way. And you think, man, I need to seek God and cry out for help. Now, we sing the song. But listen, think about this, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Well, let's be honest. Don't a lot of us feel that it seems like God doesn't provide this way of escape until long after you felt like you could bear it. You feel like you're already past your breaking point. And when is it going to happen? 
right? You feel like you're hanging by a thread and the thread broke. Have you ever been there? I've been there many times, right? Yet, guess what we learned? God's grace was still there and brought us through. And that's what we experienced. As bad as that was, as bad as that experience seemed at the time, and sometimes those are the darkest nights, the longest weeks, sometimes years, right? We're learning here with what we're seeing here. It worked for your good. Because what do we learn? God is faithful and that he is in control of our trials, not us. And he is faithful that he will not put us through more than we can bear because only he knows what we can bear. We don't even know. We're too easy on ourselves. There's times we think, man, this is all the further I can go. But no, God, by his grace, can get us much further than what we think. You know, when Paul had been stoned and left for dead, that was a test that was beyond the Apostle Paul's strength. Listen to what he wrote. He says, we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction. Affliction is not a good thing. Being stoned is not a good thing. You don't walk up to Paul. It's all good, Paul. He's <laughs> laying there under a pile of rocks. But he says, we don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, is what he wrote so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And so Paul writes that God had allowed him to be burdened excessively. In other words, he's saying that load was so heavy, it took all strength out of me that I had. I had nothing left. That's what it's saying. Have you ever been there? It was beyond his strength. It seemed to him that that thread of grace had broken. He thought it was all over. He said, I had the sentence of death in me. That's what he thought, right? So why did Paul have to go through that? Why do we have to go through those times like that? When it seems like we are at our breaking point and past that. And crying out to the Lord, is God that cruel? Is he cruel? Is that what's happening? Paul went on to write, it was so we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. So let me ask you, I know some people are in here. They're struggling with temptations that seem like they're over their head. They're more than they can handle. I would say read 2 Corinthians 1. That's where that was at, what I was just reading. And I'm saying God's trying to teach you not to trust in yourself at all, but wholly in him. And like I told somebody, it goes through all your life. I don't think you ever get too old in the Lord that he's not going to test you in that way and teach you how to trust him. But it's even harder, I think. I was telling somebody, you just get saved. Everything's new to you. You're not used to trusting God. You're not used to mind battles that come your way when you're a new Christian. You just let your mind think whatever you wanted to. And here's the devil's going to come after you more so when you are a new Christian. He is going to bombard your mind, and it is a fierce battle. And a lot of times it's like the way it was for me anyways. I can't handle this, and I'm crying out to God literally. I need your help, please. This is overwhelming. And that's what happens, but God through all that is trying to teach us something. That all things, even those things... If you just hold on and he'll get you through that, young Christian. Just be faithful to him and you'll just start learning. Then you can have experiences to look back on. Look, I didn't think I was going to be able to get through that. And I did. And I did here. And I did here. And it'll help you through the bigger things in the future. But that is what that endurance is. To count it all joy, James talks about. The diver's trials that work endurance in us. So we need to remember we know something, that all things work together for good to those who love God. Because one thing I will say, let me just throw this in as a little parenthesis, that one of the answers to overwhelming trials, Paul has just given us a few verses back. Look at verses 26 and 27 of Romans 8. What does he say there? He says, likewise, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered and he that searches the heart knows what is the mind of the spirit 
because he will make intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And so listen, speaking in tongues, you're struggling, and I'm saying, do you do this? You're struggling with a temptation, a trial, a hard period in your life. How much do you speak in tongues? Seriously. Listen, Isaiah 28, 11, and 12. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. That's Isaiah 28. Paul partially quotes that in 1 Corinthians 14. And so you're having a time, you're having a struggle, you feel like you don't have spiritual strength. Pray in the Spirit. That's what he's saying. Press in. You need to press in by praying in the Spirit. In Dr. Freeman's book, Why Speaking Tons, he talks about a woman that had lost her husband. It was a terrible time. And she said the only way she could get through that was she just prayed in the Spirit continually. Biblically, that's what it says. That's the refreshing. That's how the weary can come to rest. I would say, let's not be like the Israelites when we're going through a tough time. The prophet pleaded with them. This is the rest. This is the refreshing. And yet, Isaiah had to go on and write, yet they would not hear. So we need to spend time praying in the Spirit. Amen? Especially if we're going through a tough time. The other way that overcoming temptation is going to work for your good is you're going to be able to help others that are tempted. He led you out of darkness, out of a dark time, out of a trying time, and you're going to be able to help others get out of their darkness that's similar to yours. And believe me, he'll use you in that way. That's part of the good he's working out, not only for you, but to help other people. And I'm telling you, you get through a trial, you will find people he will bring in your path, either in church or out of church, it's like your exact situation. He'll bring them there, and you'll be able to help them out like nobody else can because you got firsthand knowledge how to help them. And so what about afflictions? That's another negative thing, if you want to say. And they come in many forms, trials of faith, chastisement, persecutions, and other things. So why does God allow afflictions in our life in many forms? And I'll say again, it's so we can know ourselves better, so we can see the corruptions in our heart that we don't realize that's why those things happen it's painful but it works for our ultimate good so if you would put something there and turn over to psalm 119 there's three verses they're all right near each other i'd like to look at so i'm saying afflictions are a good thing and we think they're a bad thing and we'll see right here they're something that is necessary for us Psalm 119, the first place we want to look at is verse 67, and David wrote this. He says, before I was afflicted, what did he do? He says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now he's been afflicted. What does he say? It's done a work in him for his good. He says, I have kept thy word, Psalm 119, 67. And then look down in verse 71. He wrote this. He said, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Why? That I might learn thy statutes. And then down in verse 75, he says, I know, O Lord, that thy judgments are right, and that thou in faithfulness has afflicted me. Well, how many want to say God is faithful because I've been afflicted? That's not in our vocabulary, is it? <laughs> but that's what David's saying there in his faithfulness for his good. He's saying these afflictions are necessary to keep us in the right path. Isn't that what happens? You're feeling something in your body's not right. It's just like God convicts you, man. You haven't been living very well here. You've been doing things, watching things, whatever, saying things you shouldn't do. He gets your attention through that, doesn't he? Trust him for healing. And Luther said this. He said he never rightly understood some of the psalms until he was in affliction and i'll tell you what else afflictions will do in problems and trials they will humble you that's what they do they work humility in us martin lloyd jones says humility is the greatest safeguard in the spiritual life so david who wrote most of the psalms he knew what affliction was and he knew that it worked humility in him. 
So after his sin with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet pronounced his chastisement, and what was that? He told David, the sword will never depart from your house from here on out. And when his favorite son Absalom drove him from Jerusalem, you know how David left? We're saying affliction produces humility. You know, if you read the account, you know how he left the city? It said he had his head covered, him and the people with him, and he's leaving that city weeping. working humility in him he'd been brought low he's a crushed man and here he's saying it's good that that happened you know why because what was God dealing with his pride and self-confidence had to be dealt with so we're saying all things work together for good even these chastisements that seem totally unpleasant at the time but God's got to work some character traits in it and you know he keeps walking up that path and at one point, one of Saul's relatives meets him on the road, Shimei. And what does Shimei start doing? He starts cursing David and throwing stones at him, throwing rocks at him. He calls him, he says, you're a bloody man and a son of Belial. Calls him a son of the devil. And you know what the old David would have done before all that? He'd have had that dude's head cut off before he finished the first, the last B in Belial. That's what would have happened to him. But God's work in humility, we're saying these afflictions we go through, we don't understand them, we don't like them. But it's working in humility that they, it's the only way God can do it a lot of times, right? And so when Abishai wants to take off Shimei's head, David said this to him, he says, Behold, my son which came forth of my bowels seeks my life. He said, How much more now may this Benjamin do it? He said, Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has bidden him, and it may be that the Lord will look on mine affliction and that the Lord will requite me good for his cursing this day. So if God's chastising you, don't lash out on maybe the person that's causing that chastisement because God's trying to work humility and see that it's the Lord's hand and he's trying to work something in you. And if you respond right, God will have mercy on you and lift your head up because that happened to David. So let me ask you this. Could God have prevented David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah? Could he have stopped that? Sure he could have. We all know that, right? It was a wicked act that David did, and God rebuked him sharply for it. He didn't give him a pass on that. But let me ask you, did God use that sin, though, for David's good? He sure did. And I'm saying all things in a believer's life work for their good, including their backsliding. Because that's what we have here. Like I said, God had to show David his self-confidence, how weak he really was, and what his pride was like. And listen, David saw himself for what he was in a way that he was changed forever. God used David's evil for his good. And the prodigal son is another example of how all things work for good. Because couldn't the father have refused to give that son his share of the inheritance? Well, what did he do? He gave it to him anyways, and he didn't stop him. He didn't stop him and tell him, don't go into that far country. That's what he did. And so here again, that son's riotous and wicked living was wrong. And yet, even that was used for his good, because what happened to that man through all that? He hit rock bottom, didn't he? He did at one point. Hit rock bottom when he was feeding the swine, eating with swine. And he was doing that actually before he ever got to the pigs. <laughs> he just didn't know it. But he finally came to his senses. That boy thought he knew his dad. He thought he knew his father. He says, yeah, my father's a fair man and a just man. But what he didn't know about his dad could only be experienced by going into that far country and coming back. And so when he came back, he didn't come back like he left. He came back as a broken and repentant man, and he was only expecting justice. He had his speech all worked out with his dad. I know you're a fair man. He had this, this fair speech worked out. Just let me be one of your servants, right? He didn't really understand his dad. But he experienced something that his older brother never understood about his father, that his dad was full of love, abounding in mercy and compassion, and ready to forgive. He saw this about his dad that he never would have seen before. His dad's watching for him. 
watching every day. When's my son coming back? He sees him coming back in the distance, and he did what no respectable Jewish father would have done back then, any man, and he ran, ran towards his son, ran to meet him. And when he gets to him, what does he do? The Greek says he kissed him not just once, not just a peck on the cheek. It says he kissed him repeatedly. And what would that prodigal have said? I never knew the heart of my father before. What a gracious, loving man he is. So he had never experienced that until he left and came back, a broken man. So all things do work together for good, don't they? They really do. And he, let me say this, he was a better man at the end of it all, wasn't he? His experience left him humble, grateful, and with the knowledge of the love of his father. Much deeper than it could have been any other way. That's what happened. And that's a picture of what God will do with the sin of his children. He'll use it for our good to those that love God, to those that repent, and to those that are humble. That's what our Father will do. So many of us have backslidden, and maybe some of us have left, and some of us hadn't. Maybe you've shown up to church every single week, but you know you've backslidden in your heart. Left your first love, but be encouraged. God will heal our backsliding. He promises. He'll even use that for our good is what we're saying, that all things work together for good if you love the Lord. Listen to this, Psalm 25. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore will he teach sinners in the way. The meek will he guide in judgment. The meek will he teach his way. And all the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. Good and upright. Therefore, because God is good and upright, he will teach sinners in the way. And all of his paths, every one of them he has us on are mercy and truth. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And I know there's some here that aren't. And you know in your heart you died today, you would perish. And God's brought affliction in your life. And you know you deserve it. And maybe you're thinking, man, I know how wicked I am. I don't think I'm really struggling that God could ever forgive somebody like me. As wicked as I've been. And maybe you've even sinned in ways that shock yourself. I don't know. Well, listen, there was a king in Israel that was as bad as it gets. We're talking about affliction. God uses that to teach sinners in the way. And you know who that king was? King Manasseh. If you would, turn back to 2 Chronicles 33. Listen to this man, Manasseh. 2 Chronicles 33, beginning in verse 1, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem, but did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, like unto the abominations of the heathen, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. For he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Balaam, and made groves, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served them. And look what he did in verse 4. He built altars in the house of the Lord, whereof the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Also, he observed times, used enchantments. He was, used witchcraft, dealt with the familiar spirits and with wizards. It says he wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. And he set a carved image, the idol which he had made, in the house of God, of which God had said to David and Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. That is wicked. Neither will I any more remove the foot of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed for your fathers, so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them according to the whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by the hand of Moses. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. And the Lord spake to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Wherefore, 
the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns and bound him with feathers and carried him to Babylon. Verse 12, and when he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers and prayed unto him. And he was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord, he was God. Now after this, he built a wall without the city of David on the west side of Gihon in the valley, even to the entering end at the fish gate and compassed about Ophel and raised it up a very great height and put captains of war in all the fenced cities of Judah. And he took away the strange gods and the idol out of the house of the Lord. That's repentance. And all the altars that he had built in the mount of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and cast them out of the city. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, and sacrificed thereon peace offerings, and thank offerings, and commanded Judah to serve the Lord God of Israel. Now listen, Manasseh was a wicked man. It doesn't have it here in Chronicles, but you read the account in Kings, and it said he shed very much innocent blood in Jerusalem throughout the city. I mean, he deserved the lowest place in hell. Setting up idols in the temple of God and worship them there? He was a Satanist in the temple, a devil worshiper. Offered up his children alive to the god Molech, cast him in the fire. And he led, he was the king, he led, it says, his people, God's people, into gross sin. Now, let me ask you, is there anybody in here that has backslidden to that extent? Has anyone in here sinned like that? Well, listen, as wicked as he was, I believe he was one of God's children. <laughs> God brought affliction on him. He brought him low like the prodigal son. And what happened? It says when Manasseh humbled himself greatly and prayed to God, an amazing thing is said when he did that. It says God was entreated of him and heard his supplication and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. You know what it says there? When it says God was entreated, it says he was greatly moved by Manasseh's prayer. Now, if a person that wicked can move the heart of God to have mercy on him, then anybody in here has hope. Anybody. Nobody's that. What, I mean, that is incredible. Because let me ask you, what would you have done if you were God? And that king had done all those things. What would you have done? He sinned against God like no other, it says. But God did what to him? Brought him to a place of affliction. Why? So Manasseh could see his sin for what it is. And for he could see God for who he is. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he will teach sinners in the way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. And if you're sitting out there thinking, that doesn't seem right. Somebody can live like that and God still takes that life and turns it around. Hey, that's what it says in Ezekiel 18. They complained about that. When God said, oh, you know, this person's like, we've lived righteous all our lives. He goes, you do that and you turn away at the end. All your righteousness will never be named. But he said, if a person commits wickedness all their lives and they turn to the Lord, none of their wickedness will be named. And they say, God, that's not fair. Your ways are unequal. And he says, are my ways unequal? Are not your ways unequal? He's the one that determines who his children are. <laughs> he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And Manasseh was given a love in his heart for the Lord because he was one of the ones that was called according to God's purpose. And here's the point of all this. Manasseh's sin and the chastisement that followed went for his good. All things, good and bad, work together for good to those that love God. And I would say this. If God has allowed affliction and chastisement to enter your life because of sin and you know it and you know you're not right with God repent. Humble yourself greatly like Manasseh and you'll find that it's all working for your good because God is seeking to humble your pride, to bring you to an end of yourself, to see how small and weak and evil you are and how great and powerful and holy he is. 
And so God will have mercy on anyone that truly repents and calls upon his name. Amen? He will. So listen, back to Romans 8. Romans 8, 28. This is a verse that is of great comfort, should be of great comfort for all of us here, all of God's children, because we can know something if we love God, that all things that come into our lives, whether they are good or bad, all things are working for our ultimate good. Can we see that? If you don't see anything else, we should see that, that the mercies of God, his salvation benefits, the word of God, prayer, fellowship of other believers, all these things God uses to work for our good, but also our temptations, our trials, our afflictions, even our backslidings. These work for our ultimate good. So if you love God, the darkest days of your life are working for your good. You just need to remember the beggar Lazarus. He saw little good in his life. And the Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous. Get used to it. It is through much tribulation that we will enter the kingdom of God. Now, how is that for a positive message? <laughs> Praise the Lord. But it's for our good, right? But listen, all of all that evil he experienced, that beggar, little good he could point to was working for his ultimate good because who would you rather be in the end? The rich man who had all the easy messages and seeming to have all the goodness and all the good things and all the blessings. When he died, where did he lift up his eyes? It says in hell. And Lazarus, the one that went through much affliction, much trouble. When he dies, what happened to him? There's somebody there to pick him up. Angels pick him up. Carry him away to the presence of God. It doesn't get any better than that. Amen. All things work together for good. So if God's called you with that effectual call, then he has a purpose for you and me. And everything in your life, everything is working for that purpose. They're all working together. So he is sovereignly by his great wisdom and power. He's taking the good and the bad and using them to bring you to an ultimate good end. And what is that? Does anyone know what that is? To take us to be in the image of his son. That's what it goes on to say. Into his glory. So I would say this. If you don't already know it, we've gone through it quite a few. This is a verse to memorize and remember, especially if you're in a trial. And so when the devil tries to get you to doubt the goodness of God because of some affliction you're going through, remind him of this. Say, I know something, Mr. Devil. That this trial, this temptation I'm going through is not designed to destroy me. I may not understand why or what I'm going through, why this testing seems to be so hard and long. But God has given me, because I know I love him, a promise. I may not understand everything, but I can know this. We know what? That all things work together for good to those that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. And that is God's word. And Jesus says, thy word is truth. And we can stake our lives on that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this precious chapter and this precious verse within this chapter, Lord, that that is something that we can know, that all things in our lives, because we love you, they are working together for our good, for our ultimate end, that you will bring us to that expected end, the salvation of our souls. And we just thank you, Lord, that you've got your hand on us, you've got your hand on our lives, and you will continue to guide and direct and by your grace bring us to the end. And I just ask that you'll do that for everyone in here, Lord. And for those that don't know you, Lord, I just ask you'll deal with their hearts and grant them the gift of repentance that they can come to you and that they can know you and that they can know all is well and that you'll put your love in their hearts. And I just thank you that you'll do that for all of us here. And we thank you for your words you've given us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Just as 
shed for me and that thou bidst me I promise I 